Hello and welcome to the Take One podcast from All Sociology. This is episode number four. My name's Ben and today's episode is all about social policy. Yeah, said no one ever. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to spend hopefully about half an hour uh, talking about social policy. I'm going to start off by giving a bit of a definition and going over what social policy is and what the main points are. Secondly, I'm going to look at why you need to know about this and how it links to sociology, particularly for those of you at A-level. And then we're going to finish off by focusing on three educational policies, the Education Act, the Education Reform Act and the Academies Act. And then we're going to look at four, sorry, not four, we're going to look at three family policies as well, focusing on the Divorce Reform Act, the Children Act and the Same-Sex Marriage Act of 2014. So once again, welcome. Uh, Hello if you've come back again. Well done you. It's lovely to uh, have you tuning in once again. I hope we're all holding up all right. It's a bit of a funny time at the moment, isn't it? It's that busy run into Christmas where we're not quite at Christmas because I certainly haven't opened my advent calendar yet. And we've gone past Halloween, we've gone past fireworks night. The nights are cold, they're dark and everyone is seeming at the moment to be very stressed and all I wanted to say is if that's you and you're stressed out with deadlines and revision and essays and stuff just stay calm and for what it's worth nearly everybody I know at the moment is feeling the pressure a little bit so you are not alone um so I'm pleased uh, that this is a uh, one take podcast as always I've still got my cold I'm gonna have to cough excuse me <coughs> And obviously, this is all done in one take. A couple of people have actually said to me, I've heard where you've put cuts in. Uh, No, you haven't, because it's done all in one take. I have not got time for editing. This is all done in one go. It's one pure stream of my babble coming out of my mouth. And today, it's all about social policy. But before we get into this, I want to say a couple of thank yous as well. So thank you very much. We've got some Indian listeners, people. Uh, We've got a few people listening in India. So hello to you. Uh, Still got people on the east and the west coast of the States. That's amazing. I've got some new listeners in the Isle of Man as well. And a shout out to everybody who's listening to this in the UK as well. Thank you very much. Uh, This week, I've got myself a nice drink. Uh, I'm gone for plain old water this week. Uh, purely because it's going to rehydrate me uh, better than anything else. I have still got my cup of tea. The betting is is that that's going to go cold before the end of the show. So anyway, without further ado, let's get underway. So social policy. What on earth is social policy? Well, in essence, this is my definition of it. It's government decisions that affect society. When we think about the words social policy, social meaning people in the world around us and policy being a course of action pursued by governments, it's the action that's taken by governments either in responding to an existing social issue or preempting, i.e. thinking ahead of a social issue that might be coming up. Now, the types of social policies uh, that get introduced are very much dependent on the politics and the priorities of the parties in power. So generally in the UK, we're looking at conservatives, Labour, uh, Liberal Democrats, and occasionally we've had a coalition. So we had a coalition government between 2010 and 2014 where um, the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats joined forces. Now, just in case you don't know already, very, very broadly, I'm going to apologise in advance to any politics students because this probably isn't as straightforward as I'm making it. Sometimes we hear about left and right-wing social policies. Now, generally speaking you would probably put someone like Labour or the Liberal Democrats on the left. And really, what that means is that they've got a slightly different focal point of what their policy is supposed to do. Very generally, their ideas generally look to reduce inequalities in society. And so, for instance, they might focus on poorer families, for instance. Whereas Conservatives would be, moreover, on the right wing, 
uh, they might look to provide opportunities for people. So not necessarily focusing on reducing social inequality, but providing opportunities for the brightest and the best in our society to make of themselves what they can. Okay. Um, also, I think it's probably fair to say that if you aren't too familiar with the government and policies and things like that, then it's good to know that the government isn't just one thing. It's made up of a series of departments and of particular interest, I suppose, for A-level sociologists, we're really looking at the Department for Education who look after schools and they've also got a remit to look after uh, families as well. The Home Office will generally be uh, the department looking at crime as well and anything to do with public life on the UK shores. And I guess as well we can mention very briefly what used to exist was the DCSF, which was the Department for Children, Schools and Families. Now this has since been kind of broken up and replaced by the Department for Education, but back in the day, uh, in 2010, um, the Department for Children, Schools and Families uh, was very much having the family under its remit. So different departments focus on different areas. Now, this podcast is really relevant to anyone studying sociology or who's interested in the link between sociology and social policy. But really, if I'm being totally honest about it, this is something that you do need to know at A-level, whereas at GCSE, you do need to know policies here and there, and I'll cover some of those as we go through, but it's absolutely imperative for for A-level students. So I'm just going to run through what the AQA, A-level sociology specification, says about social policy, and it crops up on three topics, three key modules. So the first one is education. And the spec says the signif- you've got to know the significance of educational policies, including policies of selection, marketization, and privatization, and policies to achieve a greater, greater equality of opportunity or outcome for an understanding of the structure, role, impact and experience of and access to education, as well as the impact of globalisation on educational policy. If you're worried, don't be, because we're going to cover off quite a lot of that in today's podcast. By the way, if you haven't already, go back and have a listen to uh, the second podcast, which is on the role of education. Um, I talk a little bit about uh, bits and pieces in relation to that. But also last podcast, uh, the third one, which was your questions answered, I go into marketisation and privatisation and a bit of neoliberalism and selection policies in that as well. So if you want to focus on educational policy and more recent policy, really since the 1980s, go and have a listen to podcast number three. Little sip of tea. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Families. So what the AQA says in relation to families is you need to understand the relationship of the family to the social structure and social change with particular reference to the economy and state policies. And then finally, something that we're not going to cover in as much detail today, but I will do a podcast on this in future, is the theory and methods part of the course, where you need to understand the relationship between sociology and social policy. So, for example, should sociology influence so? It should sociology influence social policy, and should that be the point of sociology to create and develop policies that the government can put into place to make society better? Now, it's not just those three, but they are the three main ones, education, families, and theory and methods. But the crime specification also implicitly mentions knowledge of the criminal justice system, which will be things like the Ministry of Justice. And it also crosses over into the beliefs unit as well. So if we look at things like, for instance, the ordination of female priests in the Church of England in 1994 and ordination of female bishops in 2014, they are also social policies as well. So it's important to have a firm grounding of an understanding of what policy is why it's important and why you need to know about it. 
Now, I said uh, to myself before I started this podcast that I was going to absolutely 100% guaranteed finish it in under half an hour. And I'm still aiming for that because I've actually only got to look at now. We're going to focus on educational policy and I'm going to look at three particular policies that will undoubtedly be useful to you in your understanding of the educational module. So I'm going to go through them in kind of chronological order, going from the one that's furthest back. It's not to say it's the first social policy, but it's really the social policy that really kick-start changing education in Britain. It's the 1944 Education Act. Now, sometimes this is referred to as the Butler Act, because the fella who kind of wrote the policy, I forget his first name, but he was called Butler. But ultimately, it's the Education Act of 1944. And this brought in quite a lot of stuff, not least the idea that education should be free to all pupils up to the age of 15. So compulsory schooling up to the age of 15. Obviously, it went up later to 16 and now it's 18, or at least you've got to be in school, uh, some kind of education training or work centre training until you're 18. So we can see even in the years between 1944 and today, uh, the age of leaving school has gone up three years. What does that potentially tell you about the importance of school and the links to having bright, educated pupils coming out of school and going into our economy? It tells you that the government and the state want to get pupils better educated so they're better equipped for the world of work and the global economy. But going back to the Education Act of 1944, one of the things that you probably would have heard about this is it introduced what's known as the tripartite system. Now, this was essentially a thing that happened at the end of primary school where every child in the country would take an exam. And that exam was called the 11 plus. And it was an exam based on things like arithmetic, so maths, and a little bit of comprehension and reading, but also things like problem solving as well. And if you get a chance to, do have a look online, see if you can have a go at an 11 plus question. See how you get on. I know personally I struggle greatly. But regardless, uh, going back to the 11 plus, what was it? It was a test that everyone took at the end of primary school and the outcome of that test determined your future. It was a selective policy. So if you passed the 11 plus, you'd end up going to grammar school, which were generally very good schools and you'd get a good level of education. Now, previously, uh, grammar schools have been phased out a little bit, but there are still pockets of grammar schools around the country. Um, so for instance, I think it's in Kent, and there's another county which escapes me for the moment, that they've still got quite a high level of um, grammar school. So this uh, type of school is still in existence in quite a lot of Great Britain. If you passed it, great. But most people tended to fail it and because it was tough. You know, it was aimed to select and sort out the top of the top to go to grammar schools. If you failed it, you'd go to a secondary modern school. Uh, both of my parents, I think, ended up going to secondary modern school. And some, a very small amount of people, went to technical schools. Now, technical schools were for people uh, with more kind of vocational skills and who were slightly more um, better with their hands and making things, engineering, that kind of stuff. But only 3% of people that actually took the plus went on to technical schools. So whilst we can talk about it as a tripartite system, what that means is basically as a result of this 11 plus you either went one of three ways, grammar school, secondary modern or technical schools, really for 97% of people it ended up being either you go to grammar school if you pass or if you fail you're going to go to secondary modern school. It's a selective policy. Now at the time the 11 plus in the Education Act was seen as really progressive and a real kind of triumph for social reform. It was seen as a very good progressive thing. But looking back we can clearly see as I said that it's a selective and streamed policy. So a whole generation of students were streamed essentially down to one of three or really two paths based on just how they 
did on that particular exam. And you'll know yourself, if you've taken exams, which I assume most of you have, that sometimes you're just having a bad day. You might be ill. Who knows what's going on at home? Who knows anything? You know. And the point is, is that that one day, never mind your rest of your educational career, everything came down to that one day. So what this did essentially uh, going forward a few years up until the 1960s the government realised and the state realised it wasn't necessarily working and what we had was basically a two class system where those who were passing it were going on to have great life chances and super trajectories into places like university and the top jobs those who failed it which was as I said most people were kind of fighting it out amongst themselves for every other kind of job so in the 1960s the government decided that we're going to have to scrap this and they introduced comprehensive schools and the idea of this was that everyone would get the same education so completely going against what they'd done previously and the idea of this really was to um, excuse me to reduce the inequality created by the tripartite system so moving on uh, the very imaginatively titled uh, Education Reform Act in 1988 uh, came along uh, as part of Thatcher's uh, new right conservative government and the education reform act reform meaning change had a lot of changes and it was a complete overhaul of the school system uh, one of the things you'll need to know about this is this is the kind of policy that really started to introduce marketization and privatization principles so things like giving more uh, choice and competition between schools uh, incre the state was stepping back uh, from schools allowing schools a bit more freedom but they were still focusing very much on a regulata regulatory role so for instance um, the Education Reform Act saw the introduction of things like Ofsted to um, kind of monitor schools' progress, league tables as well, so that parents could see how their schools were doing and decide which school they wanted to send their kids to. Remember, choice being a key part of uh, the marketisation or what maybe Miriam David would call the parentocracy. We also saw like a big focus on standards. So we saw an introduction of the national curriculum where every school was essentially teaching the same stuff. We also saw the introduction of things like SAT and GCSEs as well. So standardised testing that meant that everyone was doing essentially the same bunch of subjects, everyone was being tested in the same way and this allowed the government and uh, the public I guess to measure how well schools were doing against each other. Now as I said this is key for marketisation because some of the key ideas associated with the Education Reform Act of 1988 were competition and choice and as I mentioned having those standardised assessments means that you can compare schools by exam performance and by Ofsted results and league tables and this if you've got that competition and it's very transparent everyone can see this according to the government the theory behind it is, is if you've got greater choice you've got greater competition and competition will drive up standards there's no doubt about it okay so so the only other thing I guess we can briefly say about the uh, Education Reform Act was it introduced a funding formula and this as I mentioned in the previous podcast was essentially the idea that the more pupils and more um, students that go to a school the bigger the, the greater the capacity is filled uh, the better funded that school's going to be because schools get money per pupil essentially now this is all wonderful but it did lead some criticism lead to some criticism from sociologists not least of all the idea that when we're focusing on uh exam results rather than a kind of holistic education what it means is that teachers and uh, educators are focusing on particular types of pupils and you might have heard of the educational triage or what Gilborn and Yadell refer to as the A to C economy so essentially what this means is that if you are um, 
uh, an A grade student or a B or a C grade student, you're going to get focused on a lot more because it's really about A to, or it certainly used to be about the quality grades being seen as an A star to C or an A to C. Whereas if you're falling below that, you're not going to get the help because ultimately you're not really going to contribute towards the school's league tables and things like that. Now, another argument to that is actually the opposite, and it kind of says that if you're a student who's a you know really high really high flyer, A star, A student, even a B student, or if you're a student who's on that border, or, or, excuse me, who's doing really not very well, so perhaps like an E or a U grade student, the argument from Gilborn and Yadel is is that teachers won't focus on you because the ones at the top are going to pass whatever, the ones at the bottom are probably going to fail whatever, and it means that teachers spend most of their time on that middle group of that borderline B, C, D category because it's about getting those D grade students into C to make the school's results look better and ensuring that those B grade students don't slip down into a C or a D. Okay, so uh, the educational format has been greatly criticised. There's so much to it and I just don't have time to cover it in this podcast. You will probably be relieved to know. But I'm going to cover the Academies Act as well and this was introduced in 2010. It, the groundwork for this was actually put under put under put in under uh, the new labor government and new labor was headed by tony blair it lasted from 1997 all the way up until 2010 uh, and in 2010, uh, we had a coalition government between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. And what they did was they finished this policy off. So the idea was was that schools should be very much encouraged to turn into academies. Now, when you're an academy as a school, you have greater control over what you teach and how you teach it. So, for instance, you don't have to, although most schools do, you don't have to um, abide by the national curriculum. You can decide, for instance, what you teach, when you teach, how you teach it. You can even, as some schools schools do decide that you know we're going to not have school on a particular day of the week or we're not going to have school on a Tuesday afternoon or something like that it gives schools the power to do that now the education excuse me the the state and the government take a step back and this is very much about reduction of state control okay so going back to last week's podcast when I talked about privatization and neoliberalism it's all about that it's like a business the government don't get involved with businesses and it's the same concept with privatization they don't want to get in schools with involved with schools too much obviously they are still involved to a certain extent in terms of um you know uh regulations through Ofsted and checking league tables and all that kind of stuff but really it's more control for schools so it creates potential risks and rewards via continued emphasis on this funding formula just like any business the bis- the lifeline of the business is its income and its cash flow and that's what schools are looking at really with this funding formula that's where the money comes from and if the money ain't there then just like any business that that has cash flow problems you're going to go out of business pretty quickly so we've looked there at three educational policies the education act of 1944 also known as the butler act which brought in the tripart system and the 11 plus we looked at the Education Reform Act of 1988, brought in under Thatcher's uh, Conservative government, which brought in a whole host of things that were very much linked to uh, marketisation and privatisation, uh, introduction of uh, regulating standards and things like that. And then the Academies Act, which, as I said, very much encouraged schools and then kind of pushed schools into um, converting to academies so that they had more control over them and so that the state could step back a little bit. So I'm going to have a quick sip of tea. Excuse me. It's going lukewarm, uh, for those of you who care. Um, And now we'll have a quick look at the uh, family policies as well. Quick check of the time. I've got 20 minutes. If I don't finish this, I'm pathetic, quite frankly. But let's go for it. So 
Uh, the first one I'm going to talk about, you know, you will have undoubtedly come across this if you study families and households. It's the Divorce Reform Act of 1969. Now, this actually didn't really become properly effective until a few years later, but it's one of those things that if you ever get asked about changes in the family or changes in policy in the last 50 years, this is still useful for you. It's 2019, this was 50 years ago, and because it took a couple of years to fully come into effect, it will still be good for a few years. Now, what was the Divorce Reform Act? In essence, it meant marriages could now legally end through no fault of either partner. So before the Divorce Reform Act came out, you needed, if you wanted to get a divorce from your partner, it was quite difficult because you needed to be able to prove fault. So for instance, that they're mistreating you or they're, or they're committing abuse against you or they've, they've cheated on you for instance. Now, getting proof that someone's cheated on you is quite difficult, even in this day and age with like, you know, camera phones and all that. And in 1969, very, very difficult. So it enabled couples to break up uh, through no fault of either partner, just because of the fact that they'd fallen out of love with one another, which which happens, you know. And the phrase we use to describe this is irretrievable breakdown. The marriage is broken down and it can't be fixed, okay? And this became a justifiable reason for people getting divorced, and it's still used today. So, as I say, no proof was required, which allowed many people to get out quite easily of unhappy marriages. It's still not as easy as it is today, because I think, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think you need to be married for three years before before you could uh, potentially start divorce proceedings. So, for instance, if you'd had enough of your partner after a year and a half, you had to wait another year, year and a half before you could start divorce proceedings. Now, one of the effects of the Divorce Reform Act, unsurprisingly, given that it made divorce easier, was that we saw a huge rise in divorces. Now, it's not the only reason why divorces spiked up an awful lot between the end of the 1960s all the way up until the 19, uh, sort of early 1990s, but it's a massive factor because divorce became so much more accessible, it became cheaper, and it, as I say, also kind of coincided with other social changes at the time. So even thinking about uh, you know, moves towards gender equality. The Equal Pay Act came out the following year. You could even think about the rise of feminism and the way in which that as a, uh, a sort of a political ideology was growing and the idea that, you know, people believed in equality between genders. You could even think about the ways in which attitudes were changing as well. So, for instance, to the idea that people have a right to be happy and you shouldn't necessarily stay in a marriage if it's making you unhappy. So loads of things going on around it, but the Divorce Reform Act of 1969... It has got so many important ties to the family and households module. You know, it ties in with changing family patterns. It ties in with things like the changing roles of women. If you're ever looking for a reason uh, for why something's changed, use the changing role of women and talk about the ways in which, through combinations of things like feminism, changing social attitudes, the Divorce Reform Act, uh, more free availability of jobs and things like that, has meant that women are now coming out of the, or have come out of the family home and are moving, moving into the same sphere that's been traditionally occupied by men through paid work. So that's the Divorce Reform Act of 1969. wonder if I've finished my tea today. We'll find out. Uh, the Children Act of 1989. Now you'll know if you study families and households that there's a whole module on childhood. It's module four. And this ties into that but it also will give you a nice bit of policy to talk about um, the ways in which we are becoming more child-centric. So the Children Act of 1989 essentially put children and their rights at the heart of child policy. It's not to say that people completely ignored children's rights before this, but it tied in um, with a, a, a UN 
um, policy called uh, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. It's essentially human rights, but the kids' versions, okay, so for anyone under the age of 18. So the Child Act 1989, what was it all about? It was all about child protection. And this very much influenced the child-centric society that we might suggest we have now. So introducing things like child protection laws, safeguarding laws, retraining social services. And you can even, if you want to get all clever about it, link it to Foucault's idea of surveillance, where people are kind of now far more vigilant about child abuse and mistreatment of children than they ever have been. And that's partly, and quite a lot, due to the Children Act of 1989. Now, just a couple of quick policies that led on from this, and you can talk about if you ever get a question on child centricity or the ways in which we're now far more focused on children in society. The 1989 Children uh, Act led on to the Child Support Act of 1981, which encouraged um, uh, both parents, irrespective of whether they were separated or not, to support their children financially and emotionally, and the Child Support Agency of 1993, which was specifically tasked with uh, chasing up absent fathers. So, for instance, you know, dads uh, who had fathered a child, but who for whatever reason now weren't around. And this chased those dads up and encouraged them and actually forced them to pay maintenance and so paying money towards the cost of the upbringing of that child. Okay, so. Uh, Really, we've got there the education, the education. What am I talking about? The Children Act of 1989, which led on to the Child Support Act and the Child Support Agency of 1993. And the final one I'm going to look at, uh, with five minutes to go, so I'm almost certainly going to finish because there's not a huge deal to say about this, but it's the Same-Sex Marriage Act of 2014. Now, occasionally you'll see this written as the Same-Sex Marriage Act of 2013. Either is permissible in an exam. The only reason why it's either 2013 or 2014 is because the Act was passed in 2013, but I don't think it actually came into effect until 2014, and certainly the first gay marriage was not until 2014. Okay, so 2013 or 14, absolutely fine. And... What the Same-Sex Marriage Act did was it allowed people of the same sex to get married. It's kind of funny, that, isn't it? Um, and it really changed the shape of legally acceptable family structures. So if you're ever writing about family diversity and you're talking about the fact we've got different types of families in society, you should be mentioning the Same-Sex Marriage Act if you're talking about same-sex families because it's a totally legal, permissible form of family in much the same way as any other type of family is. Now, before this, it's not to say that a same-sex family would have been illegal. It's just now that um, marriage had been legalised so they were able to have exactly the same rights as a heterosexual straight couple would have done previously. I think the other thing we can tie into this as well is postmodernism because it's allowing people greater choice. Now, many people decide not to get married, but if you want to get married and it was and you were gay and it was before 2013, you had no choice in it. What you'd have to do if you wanted to get close to being married was to sign a civil partnership, which came through the Civil Partnership Act of 2005. And what this enabled was essentially all the same rights as being married, but you just couldn't say you were actually married. So this obviously was unequal because straight people could get married and gay people couldn't. So it changed in 2013 and 2014, allowing gay people to get married in exactly the same way as straight people. Um, now, I think the thing that's important with this and why it kind of ties in is it very much again reflects broader changes in social attitudes you know it's the idea that we've become far more accepting of homosexuality we recognize this is a thing don't forget that homosexuality i think this is right i might have got this wrong homosexuality was still illegal in britain until 19 it was either 1964 or 1967 if anyone wants to go and check that out and let me know what it is uh, i'll give you a gold star um 
homosexuality was illegal in Britain within pretty much the last 50 years. So to see that gay marriage has now been legalised shows a completely uh, different uh, set of attitudes and social change in society. So there we go. So there's uh, three family policies. We've gone through the Divorce Reform Act of 1969, uh, the Children Act of 1989, which then led on to the Child Support Act of two, uh, 2000, the Child Support Act of 1991, and the Child Support Agency of 1993. And then we finished off there by looking at the Same Sex Marriage Act of 2013-2014. So that's it. You made it. Very well done. If you're someone who's made it to end, the end of all of these podcasts, you're incredible um, because uh, you have to put up listening to me uh, for half an hour at a time you've listened to me for two hours in total now well done you I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy but you've done it so just to recap what we've done today uh, we've gone through social policy I've told you what it is I've given you a definition I've discussed very briefly the role of governments in creating it and how different governments might have different priorities I've gone over why you need to know about it particularly if you're working at a level and how it ties in it's mentioned explicitly in the education, family and theory and method sections of the specification. And it's also applicable, obviously, to crime and to beliefs as well and to any probably any other option that you're potentially taking on paper too at A-level. Then we finished off there by focusing on educational policies, so the Education Act, Education Reform Act and the Academies Act. And then finally, we applied uh, what we knew about policy to the family by focusing on the Divorce Reform Act, the Children Act and the Same-Sex Marriage Act of 2014. So that's it. The time is 28 minutes, 53 seconds. And that's going to give me a minute just to blab about some stuff that's going on. Um, so usual kind of thing, if you've listened to this, if you've found it helpful, if you've learned anything from it, if you've laughed at it or whatever, do me a favour, go and slap a five-star review on it on the Apple Podcasts app, or even better, subscribe to me so that you get this in your phone as and when I do it, not when you go to look at it. So if you want to do either of those two things, that would be great. Pop me a like on Instagram. Pop me a follow on Twitter. Tell your friends who do sociology that there is an Instagram site where it's all like nice and pretty and I make nice pictures and that. And I've also got a podcast. Go and tell your friends about it. If you find it interesting, the chances are they will too. Uh, the next podcast is going to almost certainly have a GCSE focus because I feel like I've slightly neglected uh, my GCSE uh, students in this so I'm probably going to cover um, how to write particular exam questions and then very hot news in a couple of weeks I've got a very special guest who's going to appear on the podcast uh, so there's that to look forward to as well so that's it we're done. I'm going to go and uh, throw this cold tea down the drain. I'm going to be honest, I'm going to go and have a beer because it's been a hell of a week already and uh, it's going to be nice to have a little relax tonight. I hope you're all right. Do stay warm. It's very cold out there. Uh, take it easy and as usual, if there's anything I can do to help, uh, drop me a comment under one of my posts on Instagram and I'll pick it up. I don't tend to read direct messages uh, for a variety of reasons. So if you want to chat to us or you want to pop me a question, put a comment under one of the pictures on Instagram. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, this has been episode four of the Take One podcast from All Sociology. I'll see you next week. Have a good one. Take it easy, people. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>